Good evening and welcome to Tisky Sour. I am a newly jabbed Michael Walker and I'm joined by Aaron Bastani, who for the first time in I think quite a while is in the Navarra Media Studio. I'm doing very well, Michael. I'm recovering from a an asthma attack earlier on because you know we've not we've not been uh, we've not been keeping uh, the place spick and spam. But that's going to change now, Michael, because you've been jabbed, I've been jabbed, the whole Navarra family's being jabbed, and you know there, there's now a semblance of normality. It's great to be back here, Michael. And it's great to be talking to you this evening. <laughs> is is it is it pretty dusty there? I've still got to wait a couple of weeks for mine to kick in, but I am very excited to have Moderna flowing through my veins. Tonight's show is a big one. There was some breaking news just before we went live, so we've rejigged things a little bit. That's we now know. We think that the full reopening on the 21st of June is now going to be delayed for four weeks. We'll be talking about the reasoning behind that and the significance of it. We're also going to talk about the other big story of the day, which is the G7 and a commitment they have made about vaccines. We're also going to talk about the Unite elections. Very, very important for the left and Keir Starmer making his mind up about players taking the knee to protest racism. Boris Johnson had promised an official announcement by this coming Monday on whether a full easing of restrictions would go ahead on the 21st of June. However, Harry Cole from The Sun reports the decision has in fact already been made. So he tweeted this afternoon, new final decision Monday, but Sun can reveal chances of Freedom Day on June the 21st, now next to zero. Plan to announce delay to 19th with break clause on July the 5th if hospitalizations remain low, but it's not looking good. So he's saying there's going to be a, a four week um, extension to the current situation we, we are in. So that's no clubs, no festivals. But you can eat side, can eat inside in in, in small groups. Uh, that's all going to remain the same for an extra four weeks, unless it seems that these rising cases are not leading to further hospitalizations. Now, this news all comes as the Guardian reports that cases are rising at their fastest rates since the winter wave. So the data behind that headline: daily infections are now rising at three to six percent across England. So that's every day. Um, and official figures released today suggest the daily growth rate may be as high as 8% in the northwest and between 2 and 6% in London and the east of England. So that 8% in the northwest, that's really, really worrying. That's, that's proper exponential growth. Now, this, of course, is all being driven by the Delta variant, which now makes up 91% of new cases across the UK, and which is thought to be 60% more transmissible than the Kent variant, and twice as likely to lead to hospitalizations. Now, the necessity of delaying any further loosening is made especially clear in this graphic from the BBC, showing that at current rates of growth, we are on track to have 15,000 daily cases by June the 21st. This is all very concerning. Of course, we aren't going to see, we should really, really emphasize this, we aren't going to see the number of hospitalizations and deaths as we saw in January. We're not going to enter into another lockdown similar to the one we had in January, and that's because most of the population of vulnerable age um, or people who, who are younger but are in vulnerable categories have been vaccinated. And we know that the vaccine is very effective, even against the Delta variant. Slightly less effective against the Delta variant than against the Kent variant. But it seems, I, th I think they're saying 95% effective against hospitalizations if you've had two doses. So we're in a completely different situation to the one we were in in January. But with cases rising at these rates, 
that's still lots of people catching COVID. Lots of them are going to get long COVID. And with numbers this high, you will get a significant degree of hospitalizations. And that will especially be among younger people, right? And so they'll say, well, that means it's it's less likely to convert into a death because even if you go into ICU as a young person, you're much less likely to die and you'll spend fewer days there. But for me, it's incredibly worrying when anyone goes to ICU. I'm not particularly interested in how long they stay there. Just the fact you've gone to ICU with COVID, that's going to have really long lasting effects. Now, of course, if you think about that trajectory we're currently on, that's with the current restrictions and what has dominated media discussion up to now is whether we should move from current restrictions to even less restrictions. Again, thinking about the the trajectory we are on, on that graph, on, on the BBC, you might ask the opposite question, which is, you know, far from loosening restrictions, should we be increasing them? I don't think we should be going back to anything like the lockdown we saw in January and February and March. But I think it is very reasonable for us to be considering what extra precautions we should be taking because we want to get off that trajectory. And yes, vaccinating people is going to be very, very helpful. Um, I got vaccinated yesterday. I'm absolutely delighted about it. But that's not going to kick in properly for, for two or three weeks. It's going to be ages until I'm double vaccinated. And as we can see, exponential growth happens quite quickly. So the vaccines aren't going to be able to keep up with this uh, on the current trajectory we are on. This means that once again, focus from epidemiologists is on schools. Now, this is a topic that politicians don't like to talk about very much because it's it's awkward. It's a difficult one. But it does seem to me that this is an area which has been neglected and which we are all collectively paying a price for again. I want to go to a piece published in the British Medical Journal today and by Deepti Gudasani and Stephen Riker and others, um, which warns that we need to refocus attention on reducing outbreaks in educational settings. Now, the authors complain, and this has happened actually throughout the pandemic, and it's really, really problematic, that Public Health England have been really, really cagey when it comes to details on schools. They're really, really resistant to publishing um, age breakdowns and publishing how many people are catching COVID-19 in schools, essentially because they're like, oh, we don't want to give the, the, the teaching unions a reason to complain, which essentially means they're duping lots of people. Very, very worrying in terms of transparency in government also leads to situations like this when we're having lots of outbreaks in schools and that's threatening lots of people's health right i was i was going to say that i was going to end the sentence actually there by saying it threatens to delay the time when we can all go to nightclubs because that's how it's presented in the media but of course that's not the most important thing here the most important thing is that you're going to get students parents and teachers getting covid-19 sometimes that's going to translate into very serious illness more often it's going to translate into long covid and things which are pretty worrying Let's go to the proposals which the authors of this article in the British Medical Journal suggest. And their proposals are as follows. This is the precautions we should be taking in schools. They say, we must reintroduce masks both at primary and secondary levels and both in classrooms and communal areas. Unions have jointly called for an immediate reintroduction of masks in secondary schools and several local authorities have already reinstated these. This needs to be incorporated into Department for Education guidance as a recommendation for all schools. They go on. Second, there needs to be central investment in ventilation air cleaning in schools, including CO2 monitors and air filtration devices to supplement ventilation where needed. Risk can also be reduced by moving to learning outdoors where possible, including physical education activities. 
Third, there must be practical financial and remote learning support for families with children who are isolating. And lastly, the government must provide adequate catch-up resources for children who have lost out on education over the past year to bridge gaps and worsening inequities in education. They conclude by saying, in sum, schools are the place where infections are rising fastest, yet schools are a place where the basic mitigations of face, space and fresh air are not simply missing, but in the case of masks, have actually just been removed. This makes no sense. The government must act urgently to protect and support its children at this critical juncture. Aaron, I want to go to you for your thoughts on these two big developments. So first of all, the government suggesting um, or at least the Sun reporting that the government are going to announce on Monday that there is going to be a four-week delay to the removal of restrictions. And second, alarm bells, which are being rung by epidemiologists and other scientists saying, look, far from thinking about reducing further restrictions, we should be looking at precautions in the here and now, especially in schools. It's a tough one, Michael. I mean, I don't know, <clears throat> I don't know where you stand on it personally, but for me, I mean... What use is there really in children going into schools as a learning environment if they're going to have to wear masks in midsummer for, for, for six hours of teaching? Maybe it's smarter to do more homeschooling, to end the term early. I mean, you know, I don't know. As an intervention, it seems quite... I mean, they're going to be in those rooms five days a week for six, seven hours at a time. What difference is, is a mask really going to make? I think, really? it, I think the, the epidemiologists say it makes quite a significant difference, no. actually. Well, I mean, especially now, it's the summer, so the window should be open. I think if you've got 30 kids without masks, they're talking quite a lot. That's what happens in schools. And you've got loads and loads of aerosols being released into that environment. I'm not saying we also know that, you know, catching catching COVID isn't just about, oh, if they're all in the room, they're going to get it anyway. No, because it's about viral load, right? If you've got a mask on, the viral load is going to be much lower than if you haven't got a mask on. So, I mean, I, I think this seems very sensible to me to I, say, continue going to school, but wear a mask. No, Michael, I'm not saying I'm not suggesting that given the size of the misgivings that, oh, they just shouldn't wear masks anyway. Let's say you've got a primary school of a thousand children, have general assemblies, they have all sorts of classes, let's say 25 minimum, 35 generally is the sort of more likely number. You know, what are the numbers actually? What what impact would wearing masks really have? I mean, that that to me seems unclear. If this is now hitting exponential growth again, wouldn't you just wouldn't it make more sense just to close schools early? I mean, and, and that just seems like that kind of seems like, you know, you've got a potential, a real breach in this kind of dam and you're putting like a plaster over it. Yeah, because in, in, in time limited spaces, if you're going into a shop and it's, you know, operating at maybe 30 percent capacity. Yeah. Wearing masks is really effective. But if you're putting kids into schools from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., a thousand people in an enclosed environment, walking past one another, being picked up at the school gates, et cetera, et cetera. A mask's going to make a really major difference in terms of logarithmic growth. I suspect it probably won't. So, I mean, that, that's just my that's my two cents. I think I think, I think neither of, neither of us have in front of us precisely how much masks will lower the risk of catching COVID in in school. But I'm I'm fairly confident it's it's significant. I would also say in terms of I, I see the argument you're making, which is say if this is going on, why not just close them all? Mm. I mean. A response to that, and I think that's why that hasn't been suggested in this article from the British Medical Journal, is that there are actually many intermediary steps we can take before then. And schools have been closed for such a long time that we we really are prioritising kids being in school. And especially as we're not going to see the same number of really vulnerable people catch COVID, we should be taking the more moderate measures. And given it's summer, I, I would imagine that you open all the windows 
you, you pay proper attention to ventilation. Not all schools can open their windows, by the way. So this is this is where one of the real issues is. The, the, the schools haven't been provided with the simple things that one would need to keep themselves safe. But imagine you're you're a school where you can open the windows. Yes, I know. I think this should be all schools, but it's not. Then if you've all got masks on, I can see how you can make the judgment that we can keep this school open and still keep the R number down. I, I assume that's the logic here. If you're a child and you're, and you're 10, 11, 12, I mean, how effective is the learning environment if you're having to wear a mask in midsummer, six, seven hours a day? Like I said, maybe homeschooling in that case, both in terms of learning and in terms of public safety and public health is a better option. You know, we're so close to getting these kids immunized anyway and vaccinated. You know, we're two, three months away from some of these kids getting vaccinated, hopefully, the vulnerable ones especially. It, it, it kind of seems a bit, I don't know. Just, just my two bobs worth. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not I, I, I just, just to be clear, though, I'm not suggesting that. Oh no, get open the schools that don't need to wear the masks. It's not what I'm saying whatsoever. Before I'm, you're saying just go the, go the whole hog and close them if you're going to have to introduce these restrictions anyway. Potentially, right? I mean, I mean, it does feel like by September we're going to be in a much better situation in terms of keeping these kids safe. And, and I, of course, look, we've come this far, and I know it's very stressful for for families and for parents. And one of the big arguments about reopening on, and it's something I've touched on when I've spoken to people about this. It's because I've said, and we've spoken about this ourselves, Michael, you know, it feels like things are normal for me, actually. And I don't understand what the sort of big the big deal is about opening up further after June 21st. But people with two, three kids have said, look, in the summer holidays, it's incredibly difficult to do things with kids under these conditions. It would be a godsend. So I, I do get that. But look, we, we, we could be talking about long COVID. If this carries on, potentially affecting tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids, I'm not suggesting another lockdown like like we saw mm-hmm. last winter. I agree with you entirely on that. But I just think on the looking at the potential downsides, what are masks really going to do? So, well, they might do quite a lot. I mean, as I say, neither, neither of us are in, in a position to say exactly how much to do with them. They might no, do but, quite a lot. Well, agree to disagree. I mean, I, I feel like if, <laughs> if we're looking if we're looking at this kind of growth right now, I don't see what masks are going to do personally, but. That's another that's another question entirely. If we were in a situation where we hadn't imported the Indian variant and, and you know, case rates weren't going up like they are, yeah, that's a decent argument. But it, it feels like we're on a different trajectory now. But uh, well, I mean, I don't want to be there, you know. I'm standing like a COVID skeptic. I'm, I'm the complete opposite, just to be clear. It is important to remember that the reason we are now in this difficult situation, obviously, even having reclosing schools as a question me- means that something has gone seriously wrong. Considering we were in such a good place, there was no, there was a period where we, we were doing a show where there was barely any COVID in, in the country. We were talking about, is, is the epidemic in Britain over? People thought the epidemic in Britain was over at that point. And if we hadn't imported the Delta variant, it would have stayed over. Mm. We would have been fine, right? <laughs> this wouldn't have been a question. We would have been reopening nightclubs and festivals and football stadiums on the 21st of June. As I said, that's not my biggest priority anyway, but I mean, there'll be lots of people for whom and the reason that's not happening is because Boris Johnson wanted a trade deal with India and so left the borders completely open and we imported a lot of a highly transmissible variant. And people say, oh, you know, you're, you're making it seem like this problem comes from abroad. No, we also exported the Kent variant everywhere, which caused huge, ginormous problems. The whole point with COVID-19 is the less travel for everyone, the better. 
once these variants get out, you can't put them back in. And it's just, it's the nature of how this works. That the, the variant which is going to take off is the most transmissible one. That's why the Kent variant spread all over the world when it was 50, 60% more transmissible than the original COVID-19. And that's why the Delta variant has now spread everywhere when it's 60% more transmissible than the Kent variant. And that's why we're in this situation, because just being 60% more transmissible, given it can lead to exponential growth, puts us in a super, super difficult situation. We'll, of course, have more details about this on Monday when the announcement is made. We've been talking about you know, the difficult situation that the Delta variant has put Britain in, even though we have vaccinated so many people. Now, you've got to think that there are so many countries in the world which are at risk now of having this Delta variant that even we're struggling with. When we've got 60% of the population vaccinated, they've got 2% of the population vaccinated. So vaccinating the world, very, very important it's our next topic. The G7 is expected to pledge to donate 1 billion COVID vaccines to poorer nations over a period of 12 months. Now, it would follow um, the UK's pledge of 100 million vaccines by next year and the US's pledge of 500 million vaccines over the same period. So that's, that's the commitments of those two countries and we're expecting the extra 400 million to be pledged at the G7. Now, speaking from Cornwall, Joe Biden said this pledge would help lead the world out of the global pandemic. This is a monumental commitment by the American people. As I said, we're a nation full of people who step up at times of need to help our fellow human beings, both at home and abroad. We're not perfect, but we step up. Well, we're not alone in this endeavor. That's the point I want to make. We're going to help lead the world out of this pandemic, working alongside our global partners. Under the UK chairmanship of the G7, democracies of the world are posed to deliver as well. This U.S. contribution is the foundation for additional coordinated efforts to help vaccine the world, vaccinate the world. The British government, the prime minister, has led a strong campaign to get people vaccinated across the UK. I'm grateful they're making their own generous donation. Now, this all, of course, sounds good. Um, donating a billion vaccines is better than donating no vaccines. But is it enough to lead the world out of the pandemic? The answer, according to nearly all of the NGOs and all the health experts, is not really. Now, there are two big problems. Um, the first is the quantity pledged, and the second is how soon they will be pledged. Let's focus on the quantity first. So as I've said, in, in total, the G7 are set to pledge 1 billion vaccines to poorer nations. Remember though, these are vaccines which require two doses. So that's 500 million people. So they're pledging essentially to vaccinate 500 million people. Now, as you probably know, there are 7.7 .7 billion people in the world. Now, the maths aren't particularly complicated here. We're pledging to vaccinate 500 million people. There are 7.7 .7 billion people in the world. In response to Biden's commitment, Professor Peter Hotez, who is Dean of America's National School of Tropical Medicine and an expert on vaccines, said 1.1 billion people in sub-Saharan Africa, 650 million people in Latin America, 0.5 billion in smaller, lower middle and income lower and middle income countries in Southeast Asia. That's two to three billion people, five to six billion vaccine doses. We desperately need a US foreign policy and American leadership to take on this challenge. 
So he's looking at the numbers of people in developing countries where they're going to struggle to produce the vaccines themselves. And he's saying this falls dramatically short. The WHO, um, for their part, estimate 11 billion doses are needed to vaccinate the whole world to a level of 70%. What is being promised is simply not enough. The second problem, as I've said, concerns timing. So if you donate a billion vaccines in 12 months' time, that's very different to donating it tomorrow. As we know, lots and lots of people can die in a very short space of time from COVID-19. When it comes to time in the US is committed to distributing 200 million doses by the end of this year, and then a further 300 million by June 2022. The UK, for their part, have said they will deliver 5 million doses by the end of September, with 25 million more by the end of the year. This all makes it seem we haven't had the full announcement from all of the G7 countries, but it looks as if much fewer than half of the 1 billion doses are going to be delivered over the next six months. So it looks like it's going to be more weighted towards the end of that time period. And that's not going to prevent huge outbreaks like what we saw in India. We know that when the Delta variant hits a country that isn't widely vaccinated, it's like hell. In terms of the ambition that is required, WHO Director General Tedros said that to vaccinate at least 10% of the population in every country by September, we need an additional 250 million vaccine doses. And he said 100 million of those doses will be needed in June and July. So we're nowhere near any of that. Now, some of the most stinging criticisms of the G7 plans came from one of Boris Johnson's predecessors, Gordon Brown. He told Reuters, I am afraid they have failed the first test even before they've had a weekend of talks because it looks more like passing the begging bowl round than a comprehensive plan to vaccinate the world. And if the richest countries can't get together to mount a successful plan to vaccinate the world, I don't know who will. He also said, the government has yet to recognise that if you're leading the G7 and you're talking about global Britain and you made a promise last Sunday that you're going to vaccinate the world, you've got to deliver on it. It's a catastrophic failure if we can't go away in the next week or two with a plan that actually rids the world of COVID. Now we've got a vaccine. And Boris Johnson was asked earlier this morning by Laura Koonsberg why the ambitions weren't up to the challenge, why the, why the numbers weren't big enough when it comes to what NGOs, what the World Health Organization is saying. He said, oh, look, we've created loads of the Oxford AstraZeneca jab. That's being put in loads of people's arms. I don't know why people are complaining about the UK. When you're talking about a pandemic on this scale, to say, look, we've done our bit, what more can you expect, is just, it's obviously absolutely immoral. I mean, because you could have said this as the government in March. Look, we've already closed the pubs. Why would you expect us to... We've already done what is historically considered to be quite a lot, right? We've introduced furlough. We've closed the pubs. Why are you now expecting us to put together a test and trace system? Why are you now expecting us to close the schools, right? And uh, the reason we were expecting them to do those things is because this was an extraordinary moment. When we say build a test and trace system, when we say pay people money to self-isolate, we're not saying, oh, you haven't done anything. You've done fucking loads, but you've done fucking loads because we're in a global emergency which requires extraordinary measures. So to say, oh, well, why are you complaining at ours? Because we've already helped develop a vaccine and we've already donated 500 million quid or whatever. 
the answer to that is because these are exceptional times. We clearly need billions and billions and billions. I think the estimate is 50 billion invested in this to make it happen in the timeframe which is required. And we are the country. They say, oh, look, we've already spent so much money on things domestically. Yes, we're one of the few countries in the world which is able to borrow on the financial markets for essentially 0%. These countries with 2% people vaccinated, they can't borrow on the financial market. So the idea that, oh, it's time for us to look, look out for our own is just the opposite of what we should be saying right now. When it comes to other leaders of the G7, so two of them at least can say that even if they have not pledged enough vaccines, they have done one useful thing, which is to suggest they will support removing the patent on vaccines. So the two leaders who have are Emmanuel Macron and Joe Biden. Oxfam today were protesting outside the G7, calling for the other five leaders to join them. We are, of course, yet to get much concrete news from inside the G7. They started talking for the first time this afternoon. As was perhaps predictable, though, even if we haven't had any concrete pledges, we have had at least one gibberish intervention from the host. Let's take a look. I think that is what uh, the people of, the, uh, of our countries now want us to, to focus on. They want us to be sure that we're beating the pandemic together and discussing how we'll never have a repeat of what we've seen, but also that we're building back better together and, and building back greener and building back fairer and building back more equal and uh, how shall I, more, in, in, in a more gender neutral and perhaps like a more feminine way. How about that, apart from anything else? So uh, those are some of the objectives that we have before us at, at Carbis Bay. Completely bizarre intervention. He's saying we're going to have a gender neutral building back better. But I mean, I suppose his job is to entertain. Aaron, what I really want to know from you is not about the gibberish Boris Johnson speaks, but um, about the insufficient pledges which have been made when it comes to vaccinating the world i mean it doesn't touch the surface does it michael um we've got like you say 500 million people could potentially be helped by this offer i think last week the who gave sign off to was it the sinopharm uh vaccine one of the chinese vaccines mm. and the plan is and the plan is just for this one chinese vaccine to produce i think three billion doses over the next 12 months now clearly some of most of that's for sale or it's for the domestic chinese market but those are the kinds of numbers involved from a, a, a middle-income country. I know China's the world's second largest economy, but it's not a, a hugely wealthy country when you look at it per person. And it does feel like global leadership on this has been taken. With, people call it vaccine diplomacy because we're meant to talk about, oh, the global bad guys, Russia, China, evil, you know, evil Russia and China, Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin. Well, the reality is in 12 months' time, it's perfectly possible that those two countries have produced far more vaccine than the G7 has, uh, and given it to countries in the global south. I mean, that seems quite plausible right now. could change, and of course, it's a baseline. It, it could be higher, but as, as a commitment, and look, Michael, you know, our viewers don't need to be reminded of this after, after 18 months of this crisis, but it's in, this, it's in the rational self-interest of the G7 countries to vaccinate as many people as humanly possible. You know, it's of secondary importance to vaccinating their domestic population because of the possibility of various, you know, strains being generated and creating new public health crises at home. So it makes no sense from a rational interest point of view or from a trying to project a picture of American or, you know, Western leadership on the global stage. 
it doesn't make any sense at all. And I think there's two reasons why. The first is that the the electorates of these countries have been so massively shaped by miserableist, misanthropic politics for about 40 years, really since the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, that the idea that <clears throat> Joe Biden would say, well, we're going to produce, which, this is, these are the terms that he needs to be talking in, we need to produce, you know, 20 billion doses. Well, people say, hey, hold on a second, we need to put America first. And actually, if you look at Pew Research data over the last couple of decades, you know, particularly in the last couple of years, I mean, I think it was actually in 2020, it's much more pronounced amongst Republicans, but even amongst Democrats, you know, there's not a huge desire to actually help the rest of the world anymore. Uh, and you could say, well, in, in there's some sort of positive manifestations of that uh, with not wanting to start new wars, at least you know, openly, like in Iraq and Afghanistan. But there's also not really much of an impetus to help the global south through multilateral efforts with vaccinations. So I think that's part of it is the sort of domestic electorate. We see that with the Tories. They're cutting, you know, foreign investment, foreign aid rather, uh, I think from 0.7% to 0.5%. I mean, I think that's right. And it's hugely popular with Tory voters. So I think that's that's one part of it. And another part is, you know, really, there's just no strategic leadership coming from the West, the West right now. And the fact that Joe Biden is this transformational US president, you know, like we were joking a year ago, he couldn't recognize his sister from his, his wife. It, it's a very, very strange moment, Michael, because we have these rising powers particularly China, also just in East Asia, the ASEAN economy is a huge, uh, and, and we're moving towards this world of multipolarity, and still the West isn't really recognizing the scale of the challenge, and saying we're going to produce a billion doses, wow, this is so underwhelming, you really aren't even meeting the sort of minimum expectations, and like I said, it's before we talk about rational self-interest. No, absolutely. And the, the rational self-interest being that, that the longer it takes for us to vaccinate the world, the more of these um, variants we're going to have. And some of them might be um, somewhat resistant to vaccines. Um, in terms of who's going to produce more, the Chinese or the West, I think that's very much still up in the air. I think w what is for certain, and you know, you say a billion for Sinopharm, I think AstraZeneca's you know, looking at three billion. You know, th th There's lots of companies planning to produce lots of vaccines. I think more what the Chinese example shows is is that one, vaccine diplomacy has actually applied some pressure on, on the West. I don't think they'd be talking about removing patents at all if it weren't for the fact that there are alternatives in, in China and, and Russia. If you look at when there was a unipolar moment, when the HIV crisis was going on, it took like a decade for them to suggest um, making HIV drugs affordable. The other big lesson from it is what you really want is a homegrown manufacturing industry for vaccines, right? That's what China has. That's why they don't have to rely on this begging bowl from the G7 who are never going to stand up to the plate inadequate time. Um, you are watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. If you are a supporter of our channel, of our organization, thank you so much. You make this all possible. If not, please go to navarramedia.com slash support. And as you know, we ask for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. Um, we really, really do appreciate it. On Thursday, Matt Hancock gave evidence to the Health and Science Joint Select Committee on the COVID-19 pandemic. The session was highly anticipated because it followed two weeks on from Dominic Cummings levelling extraordinary allegations. Now, the Health Secretary was helped by this opening statement from Committee Chair Greg Clark. Now, we took oral evidence from the Prime Minister's uh, former advisor Dominic Cummings on the 26th of May. Uh, Mr Cummings agreed at the hearing to provide written evidence to substantiate various verbal claims um, that were made at that hearing. Uh, Mr Cummings was asked to provide this evidence to the committee by Friday the 4th of June in good time to inform our questions today to the Secretary of State. 
We have not received that evidence, nor any explanation as to why that has not been available. Now, as Jeremy Hunt and I both said in our last hearing, it's important that if serious allegations are made against an individual, they should be corroborated with evidence, and it must be counted as unproven without it. Now, that opening statement essentially meant the session was a little bit less dramatic than many of us had been expecting because it was basically giving Matt Hancock a bit of a get out saying, yes, Dominic Cummings may have leveled all of these claims at you, but we're not going to push too hard on them because he didn't back them up. To my mind, um, though, there were still lots and lots of interesting statements made by Matt Hancock in his testimony. I mean, it was over four hours long and much of it was not very convincing. So these comments on the government's failure to pay people to self-isolate was probably what was most telling. The very specific thing we're trying to understand, because this is a lessons learned exercise, is, is why in that middle period of last year, we weren't successful in preventing the second and third lockdowns. And when Baroness Harding gave that evidence in February, we were in the middle of our third lockdown. Now, just on that point of financial support, some people say that one of the reasons people didn't isolate is because we didn't just give a simple promise that if you isolate because you're asked to by test and trace, we will make up as the state any salary loss that you have. Would that have helped? Well, the challenge that we had with that proposal is the extent to which it might be uh, gamed because after all, a contact gives test and trace their contacts. That is what contact tracing uh, is, is made of. And so you wouldn't want a situation in which you, uh, if you tested positive, you could then I list understand. your entire um, uh, 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 friendship network uh, who all get a £500 payment. An extraordinary explanation from Matt Hancock. So he's saying there was this policy which maybe could have worked to limit the spread of COVID-19. We couldn't adopt it because... It could be abused and some people could use their friendship networks to get money. Where was a policy area where people were able to use their friendship networks to get lots of money? Basically, every other aspect of policy when it came to COVID-19. So when it came to PPE, what we saw is people who were in friendship networks with the Conservatives were able to charge, charge way above the odds for PPE, which often didn't work. Matt Hancock didn't say, oh, well, we won't be able to do this because some people in friendship networks might be able to abuse the system and get money. He said, no, I'm going to do that. And by the way, when you point out that people in my friendship networks like, abuse the system to get money, I'm going to say, yes, well, even if that risk was there, this was so important because this pandemic was deadly and we saved lives by doing it. For some reason, that logic doesn't apply when it comes to this hypothetical that some people might have claimed £500 by gaming the system. Obviously, the difference here is they wouldn't have been in the friendship network of Matt Hancock. They would have been, you know, probably working class people in the country for whom £500 means a little bit more than it does to Matt Hancock and his friends. Now, you might say, look, I've misunderstood. He wasn't saying the problem was that people would unjustly claim money and it would be a waste of money and you know we'd be rewarding cheats. You could say, no, his worry was that what would happen is that people would get COVID-19 on purpose. And so the policy could backfire. Instead of reducing the transmission of COVID-19, these payments could actually increase it. 
Now, for this one, I'm not going to give my own argument. I'm going to go to a behavioral scientist on this and one of the advisors to SAGE. It's Stephen Riker. He sits on the SPY-B group. So that's the, the, the body which gives behavioral advice or behavioral science advice to SAGE. Now, Riker replied the following um, under the clip we've just shown you. So he says, it was Tory anti-welfareism which determined the decision, the old discredited notion that the problem is benefit cheats when a far greater problem is lack of benefits or, or and of benefit take-up. It reflects an elitist mistrust of the masses, the same ideology which led the government to delay lockdown because of a supposed behavioural fatigue and to delay testing and masks on the ground that people wouldn't wear it. They were wrong on every count and we paid for it in lives and economic devastation. It shows that the failures of this government aren't coincidental, that it isn't a matter of a few incompetent individuals or badens or of narrow-minded groups. It is dialed deep in the, into their ideology. It is expressed in so many intellect ways, and it comes down to the fact that they see the public as a problem when the evidence shows that collective solidarity is the best asset in a crisis. I think that last sentence is what's so important there. Stephen Riker is someone who has studied how the public behave in pandemics, and he said actually what the government should do is draw on people's collective solidarity. That is the best way to contain diseases. It's not to assume that everyone is incredibly cynical and is going to try and game the system, even if that's what Matt Hancock's friends do. It's not what the general public are going to do. That's according to behavioural scientists who have studied pandemics in lots of different environments. But instead, we have a government who assumes the worst about the general public and assumes the best about their own friends, or at least accepts the worst from their own friends. And what we have is a situation where 40% of people who were contacted didn't self-isolate because of this, this quack idea that if you introduced some kind of benefit to make life more livable for ordinary people, they would go out and lit lampposts to get COVID-19 on, on purpose. We've been complaining for months that the government hasn't paid people to self-isolate. This is, this is such an obvious gap in their pandemic response, and it's almost inexplicable why they haven't, why they haven't introduced it. W what did you make of that explanation from Matt Hancock? Well, it's quite a vanilla sort of neoliberal argument. You know, we, we, we saw this repeatedly actually towards the beginning of this crisis, and this is where you saw cracks in the kind of neoliberal economic orthodoxy, because the very same people who said, well, austerity would be a really good idea, 2009-10, the, the exact same people, some of the exact same economists were saying, well, look, we can't pay people not to work because it doesn't create the right incentives. That'd be a terrible thing, actually, for the economy. Uh, and clearly, that is the stupidest thing, we, you know, aka, by the way, we, we don't want to disincentivize work. No, that's absolutely what we want to do. We want to, we want to have a, a demobilization of the economy to get on top of a pandemic, right? The, the public health argument was, you want to definitely not have people having the incentives to work. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. And it sort of, I think, puts into, into clear view how utterly stupid the arguments around austerity were. You know, crackpot arguments, Michael. And it's easy to look in the rearview mirror at 2007, 2008, 2010 and go, well, they were all so wrong. But we've basically lost, as a, as a country, as a society, We've basically lost 13 years because today, I mean, we're, we're, we're still using, losing years, but in terms of life expectancy, in terms of child poverty, in terms of access to, to, to buying a home, you know, in terms of being above the sort of the poverty threshold, 60% of the, the average wage, we've basically lost 13 years. Debt's going up because of these idiots. And I, I think we should be grateful that actually people are beginning to realize it's not entirely 
all it's cracked up to be. And actually, they shouldn't be listened to. And actually, yes, when you hear them and you say, well, that doesn't sound like common sense, you're entirely right. It isn't common sense. You, you shouldn't listen to them. A lot of them are idiots and ideologues and zealots and fanatics. And I think Hancock summed that up pretty well. I actually want to go to uh, to something else from Stephen Reich, which relates to to what you're saying. Because, I mean, essentially you're saying, you know, all of these people who say our theories are how the world works, they've been outed as essentially like quacks. People, people who are sort of making it up on the on the back of an envelope. It's not tested in real life. Over and over again, it's proven to be wrong. And Stephen Riker, who, as I've introduced, he sat on Spy B. He was one of the behavioral scientists who was advising Sage, is saying these quacks were portrayed by the government as the science, and that was used to justify their own terrible mistakes. So I want to go to a, another thread from him that he, he he put out on on Thursday after that testimony from from Matt Hancock. So here he's screenshotted a, an article from Sky. COVID nineteen. Matt Hancock says an earlier lockdown would have gone against scientific advice, and in particular, in the testimony he gave. He was asked, you know, why didn't you lock down earlier? He said, well, because all the behavioral scientists were telling me that we'd, that the public would get behavioral fatigue. And therefore, who was I to override them? Now, Stephen Riker responds to this. I well recall the moment we first heard the argument that lockdown had to be delayed because people wouldn't abide it for long. We had no idea where the idea came from. And we were horrified first and foremost because we felt it was wrong and would do great damage. I had joined the government advisory structures because of previous work I had done with Professor John Drury on behaviour in emergencies, where the consensus debunks the notion of panic and shows how people act in far more orderly, reasoned and supportive ways than usually assumed. This notion was a return to the old folk psychology myths about the frailty of mass behaviour. It was the triumph of myth over evidence. It went against the general scientific consensus. It certainly went against what we were advising the government. We were horrified also because if this idea gained traction, it would discredit behavioural science and suggest it was part of the problem, not the solution. We felt that it would be used subsequently to blame the scientists for the government's failures. Now, over a year later, we realised that we were more accurate than we feared. Hancock argues he was stopped by the scientists from acting quickly against COVID. This is an inversion of the truth. If this were a proper inquiry, Hancock would be guilty of perjury. We talked at the time, like in March 2020, about how this, this this concept of behavioral fatigue seemed to be absolute nonsense. I remember showing images of the, the Italian military driving through a town with bodies on the back of their, their trucks. The usual undertakers couldn't handle the number of deaths. And we had in Britain people say, oh, no, people will get behavioral fatigue. Seriously, you've got all of these bodies piling up, the hospitals are overwhelmed, and you think people are going to be like, no, we demand going outside and going to the pub. The government was saying, the behavioral scientists say this. Now we're hearing the behavioral scientists saying, we were not saying that, right? Aaron, I mean, two, two possibilities here. Matt Hancock is a pathological liar, or there were some behavioral scientists, e.g. the people in the nudge unit, the neoliberal nudge unit, who were telling them these quack theories, and they only listened to the scientists they wanted to believe. You know, I think it's the second one. But Michael, this this has been going on for a couple of hundred years. Like, seriously, people have been dying at the hands of British government in the name of science. And I, I, I'm not saying this lightly. If you look at the famines that were inflicted on the Indian subcontinent by successive British governments, you know, about 35 million people die in India, British India, under British rule between the 1760s and 1948. 30, 35 million, huge numbers. Now you think, well, Famines happen, okay? Well, hold on a second. When a gentleman called Richard Temple, Sir Richard Temple, tried to get grain to, to sort out the Orissa famine, 
Do you know what The Economist said, Michael? I think it was in 1866. They said, it's not the job of government to stop people dying. The Economist magazine, right? Because what he was doing was interfering in the full functioning of the free market, laissez-faire economics. The exact same story in Ireland in the 1840s, 1850s. Millions of people died in famines because the science was you shouldn't interfere. That, that's economic orthodoxy. You shouldn't do that. This is the right thing to do. So we're in a really old story here, Michael, of British elites, white, powerful, wealthy men allowing people to suffer purely for greed, purely because of, of, of commercial or business interests, and dressing it up as scientific. This is not new, <laughs> right? Okay, this isn't the Bengal famine in 1943. It's not the Arisa famine. It's not the Bengal famine of the 18th century. But the, the fundamental basis is the same. So, you know, screw the working class. We're going to look out for the elite. We're going to put the economy first, but we're going to dress it up with these pseudoscientific theories. Some things don't change. Very depressing and very well put. Uh, let's go straight on to our next story. The stakes in the election to be the next general secretary of Unite could not be higher. Now, Unite has 1.4 million members. As we rebuild from the COVID pandemic, there is a chance to pressure employers to change the way we work. The militancy of big unions will really matter. Do they have leaders who want to roll over when employers and the government demand certain things? Or will they be willing to stand up and fight for a shorter working week, for the right to work from home when people want to, for better sick pay, for example? Who leads Unite matters for all of those things. It also matters for the Labour Party. Now, Unite is Labour's biggest donor and it controls key votes at the party conference and on the party's NEC. What I think is probably going to be the priority for centrists in the Labour Party is to change the leadership rules to bring back the Electoral College so someone like Jeremy Corbyn can't be elected again. I think if a right-winger leads Unite, replaces Len McCluskey, a left-winger, then that will be you know, almost a, a given. I, I think that will happen. So it really, really matters that the right don't win this. Unfortunately, it seems they could. And that's because the left vote is currently split between free candidates and the votes of the right will be united. Now, we can get up the candidates now. The left candidates are Steve Turner and Howard Beckett, who are both currently Assistant General Secretaries to Len McCluskey. Also on the left is Sharon Graham, who leads the organising department. So those will all be competing um, if they all remain. I mean, if they all remain in the race, they will all be competing for votes from the left. And on the right is Gerard Coyne, who has no other competition from the right. Now, Coyne has stood in the past. He stood in 2017 against Len McCluskey, and he only narrowly lost. So in those elections, Len McCluskey got 45% of the vote and Gerard Coyne got 41% of the vote. Again, in those elections, the left vote was split. Ian Allenson was also appealing to left-wing voters. And I mean, if he'd got a couple of percent more, it could have been Gerard Coyne who'd won then. If Gerard Coyne had won in 2017, Jeremy Corbyn would not have lasted as leader for, of, of Labour for as long as he did. Now, the reason there are four candidates um, is that to qualify for the ballot, they all needed to secure nominations from at least 5% of Unite's branches and workplaces. In this instance, um, that meant candidates needed 172 nominations. Um, as we can see here, all four made the grade. So Steve Turner um, got 525 nominations, Sharon Graham got 349, Howard Beckett 328, and Gerard Coyne 196. Now you might look at that thinking, why are we worried about Gerard Coyne? He's got so few nominations. 
Well, the issue is among organized workers in their branches where they, they vote on this, Gerard Coyne is not particularly popular. The fear is that now he's on the ballot, he'll have a very organized campaign. They'll be advertising on social media to less organized Unite members, and that could get them over the line, as you saw before Gerard Coyne got 40% of the vote, and he definitely didn't get 40% of the nominations that time around. So he'd be expected to overperform this phase. Of course, all of this means that the left really need one candidate. They need a single candidate to be able to beat Gerard Coyne. In fact, speaking on the show back in February, that's what one of the candidates said. This is Howard Beckett um, speaking on the issue of multiple left candidates running against Gerard Coyne. The right wing will not get on the ballot, Mike, uh, Michael. You're hearing it from me first because it is an, a high bar that they would have to meet and our branches will not uh, will not allow that to happen. But if for any reason I was wrong, it, you can do two things. First of all, knock me over with that feather that I've referenced. And secondly, uh, put the lock in the door until the, the three candidates who described themselves as the left uh, reach an agreement as to who the candidate should be. So that was Howard Beckett on an episode of Tiski in February. He reassured us that Coyne wouldn't get on the ballot. He did get on the ballot. And he's now said, well, and he said that if he does lock us in a room, don't let any of us out until there's just one candidate standing. Um, they have been meeting. So this idea of them all being in a room, that has happened. But it doesn't seem as yet as if any of them are willing to stand aside. We can go to some of the statements now. Let's start with Steve Turner. Um, so he released a statement on Thursday saying, as you will be aware, at close of nominations yesterday, I had reached 526 nominations from branches across our union. This represents by far the largest number of nominations received by any candidate, and it continues to grow as the validation process is completed. Given the leading position I hold and the consequences of a split vote for our union, I had a responsibility to meet with other candidates to investigate the opportunities to secure a single nominee for the ballot. Those discussions have started and are ongoing, and I trust you understand that a running commentary would be unhelpful. He's clearly not planning to stand down. He did get the most nominations, somewhat understandable. Let's go to Howard Beckett's statement. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing because this was quite a lot longer. You can look at it on his Twitter if you want to see the whole thing. He said, at today's meeting, my campaign made the case as to why our candidacy far outstrips others and is best placed to win the election. We were the only team to present proposals at today's meeting with the aim of conducting a transparent and fair process in order to agree one left candidate, as I want to ensure that our program for improving the working lives of our members remains paramount after the election. I have, as yet, not had a formal response to those proposals and discussions will continue. Now, I presume one of the reasons he might not have got a formal response to those proposals is that Steve Turner will say, look, there already has been an open and fair process. It was the nominations process, and I won that. He also, by the way, won the caucus within the United left. That's why lots of people are saying, look, Steve Turner's the obvious candidate here. Perhaps Howard Beckett's trying to you know, get some guarantees from him. I'm in no position to say. Um, potentially most worrying is, is Sharon Graham's statement, which suggests she has you know, no interest whatsoever in standing down to allow for there to be a unity candidate. She posted on her Twitter, thank you for all your messages of support. I have today submitted my acceptance of nominations and officially confirmed that I will be standing to be the first woman general secretary of Unite. I look forward to working with you on our program for positive change. I, of course, have reached out to other candidates to join my team and await their response. In the meantime, I am focusing on winning for workers. So she's invited people to join her team. 
this could be an absolute disaster, couldn't it? There are now, of the three big unions, so GMB, Unison and Unite, two of them are controlled by people who are very supportive of Keir Starmer, who would not object to something like returning the Labour Party to uh, an electoral college system where no left-winger can be elected again. If Unite also falls to the right, you know, the left can say goodbye to the Labour Party. And it looks here as if we could have three left candidates splitting the vote in a first-past-the-post election. What do you make of it all? You're absolutely right. The stakes with the Unite General Secretary vote are, are super high. And people say, well, look, we should be talking just about the, the labor organizing element of Unite. And of course we should. That's the point of a union. But it's also a bit, I think it's a bit silly to say that Unite and its political leadership over the last 10 years hasn't obviously been a major factor in a resurgence of the parliamentary left in this country, right? I think that's a, a pretty fair assessment. You shouldn't just vote for the general secretary on that basis, but you can see why it's relevant for many, many people. In terms of, in terms of what has to happen, I mean, I, I'm quite optimistic in terms of, if there is a single left candidate, they would beat Gerard Coyne. You go back to the last time, you know, Ian Allison, like you said, was very close. But if you put his and, and, and um, Len McCluskey's votes together, it's about 60-40, which, you know, it's not a landslide. But I think 60-40 for me is kind of like, that's the beginning of a big win. You know, it's 20 point difference. So, and a 12% turnout. And I don't think it would be lower than that. And I think many people didn't vote thinking that Len McCluskey was just going to win. I mean, he had more than like a, a thousand nominations. So I think a single left candidate would do really well on a message of not just giving money to Labour willy-nilly, but actually getting political leverage in return, because that's what members want. Gerard Coyne's pitch is, I will give Labour resources and money without asking any questions or trying to have any impact over policy. Why the hell would you do that? He's basically going out there saying he's like the anti-Trump. I am the worst negotiator you could possibly imagine. I'm going to give you this money, and I want nothing in return. That seems to be his pitch right now. So I don't think that's going to be very alluring to many people, between those three candidates, Sharon Graham, Howard Beckett, Steve Turner, cards on the table, I think it should be Steve Turner. I know as journalists, Michael, we shouldn't be saying that, but I think as a left, you look at the nominations, you look at the internal caucus process, I, I would need to hear strong countervailing arguments from the other two why it shouldn't be Steve Turner, and we've not heard those. I mean, that's possible, right? Uh, they might be able to say, I know, for instance, Howard Beckett's contested the, the validity of the process to in, internally adopt a candidate. Okay. So let's say it was a draw. He's still got the most nominations from, mm. you know, the, 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 the wider membership of Unite. Sharon Graham saying, you know, I'm, I want to be the first woman general secretary. Well, look, a woman leads the TUC. A woman leads the U UCU. Uh, Unison uh, has, a, has, a, has a woman general secretary. It's fantastic. and It would be a wonderful thing for Unite. But I don't think that's sufficient to say. It's not like the Labour leader, for instance, never had a, a woman leader. You say, it's time, has to be a woman. No, I think we, we, we have to be pretty clear that Somebody's won the most nominations from branches. They won the internal left caucus. I don't, I don't think that's sufficient to over, over, overwhelm that. My personal view, I mean, again, people will disagree. So for me, it should be Steve Turner. Initially, all we're seeing here could just be jockeying for position. My worry is, though, and if it was just two, you'd say, fine, you just need to get one person to agree. But it's three, which means two people are going to have to stand down. And that, I think, presents a real collective action problem. Uh, and, and so... On the one hand, one on the one hand, I'm optimistic. On the other hand, you know, even if one person ultimately agrees to that and can see it standing down, you still have a major issue. And if Gerard Coyne does win, Michael, it's a it's a huge defeat. It's a huge defeat for the left. Huge. You know, maybe Luke Akers is watching this and sniggering, and he'll, he'll post it to Twitter later on. It's huge. You know, it would it would mean not just a backward step for 
the left, the parliamentary left, because again, that's not what trade unions are fundamentally about. But what we would see with Gerard Coyne as the General Secretary of Unite is basically like Margaret Hodge now on Twitter, just talking about Jeremy Corbyn, talking about the past, sabotaging, I think, actually the Labour Party in, in, in key ways. I think, not, not intentionally, but I think just incessantly talking about the past, looking inwards, not providing a, a story and a project for the, for, the, for the broader public to get involved in and get excited about. And I think the left has no chance if it doesn't do that, both with regards to Labour, but also the Labour movement. Really big stakes. And if, if Gerard Coins win, uh, Jared Coyne wins, sorry, terrible, terrible day. Can't happen. We shouldn't say that as journalists, but it really would be terrible. Before we go on to our next story, we want to hear from you, not just about the stories we've been talking about tonight, but about Navarra Media in general. That's because we're currently conducting a survey of our audience to find out what you like about our content, what you don't like, and any ideas you have for Navarra Media, for the organization. We're going to take those into account as we decide how we're going to grow. If you want to go to navarra.media slash survey, you'll be taken through to it all. It should all be very self-explanatory. It takes just five minutes to fill in, and we really do appreciate it. Next story. Under the ownership of Rupert Murdoch, The Sun became Britain's best-selling newspaper. In the 1990s, its circulation peaked at 5 million per day. It's toxified this country's discourse about migrants and benefit claimants, and its support has always been seen and for the last 40 years at least, as necessary for any party leader to become prime minister. However, Rupert Murdoch now thinks the brand is worthless. The FT report that Murdoch has written down the value of the paper to zero, the company's most recent accounts show that during the pandemic, News Group newspaper, which operates The Sun and The Sun on Sunday, nursed pre-tax losses of £210 million pounds. Aaron, I want your thoughts on this. The Sun has shaped British politics for the worst for over 50 years. It was bought by Murdoch in 1969. I really didn't realise it was that long yep. ago. Yep. How much does it matter that he now judges the paper to be worthless? It's not worthless. It was never about making money. It was all about influencing political outcomes. The Sun hasn't been making money for a very long time. Not serious money anyway. Not enough money that you would invest in its long-term future, build new infrastructure, you know, have really forward-looking recruitment programs and so on. Uh, where its value lies, Michael, now for Rupert Murdoch, look, he's an old man. He's in his 80s. It's about ensuring uh, political control over the right people for long enough. It might be around another 10, 15 years. And, and, and that, that's ultimately what the sun is about. It doesn't need to make money. It's been losing money, you know, for, for a pretty long time. Um, so... I don't think there's a, a future for the sun as a commercially viable project, but I don't think that's why Murdoch bought it in the first place. He bought the News of the World, I think, in 68, bought the Sun a year later. I mean, the story of the Sun and Rupert Murdoch is a remarkable one, Michael. You know, when he bought it, he promised, he promised the trade unions behind its publication that it would remain a Labour voting newspaper. Uh, and like I said, that was in 60, you said it's in 69. I think they, they endorsed Labour in 70, 74, they went Tory. And in 79, there was a 1,600-word leader article in The Sun. It's like an LRB article, right? 1,600 words saying why people should vote Margaret Thatcher. 1,600 words. A year later, the first editor under Murdoch, a year later, Larry Lamb, guess what? He was given a knighthood by Margaret Thatcher. You don't understand 
the political revolution we ha had in this country with the Tories, with Thatcherism, then with Blairism fundamentally, not any big changes to the economic model of the country, you don't understand that with also, without also looking at the history of the Sun newspaper. So yes, it's brilliant that it's not making money. I mean, it would be terrible if it was profitable as well as politically influential. Uh, but, but that's not the fundamental reason why, why Murdoch has it. And he has a he has a bunch of other projects which are also hugely influential. It's only one part of the empire. However, you know there are parts of his sort of stable, Times Radio, the Sunday Times. You can see how they are viable and profitable media projects for the 21st century. The Sun isn't one of those. So partly to be celebrated, but that was always that was always the game, right? It, he is not making money from his UK outlets. It's about shaping the anglophone political sense of possibility the big money he's always made has been in the states i see what you're saying about this was never really about profit when it came to the sun it was about influence but the reason it's not making a profit is tied to the fact it is losing influence now if if, if its circulation has dramatically fallen that's why he's not making a profit anymore then presumably whatever is written in the sun whatever the whatever party the sun endorses at the next general election is going to be less important than it was you know a decade ago or or, or do you think i'm i'm mistaken there I don't think you're mistaken. Clearly, the Sun isn't deciding elections like they claimed to in 1992, right? It was the Sun what won it, and I mean, I'm not going to give them the the kudos to say that was correct, but it, it was it was it was more plausible then than it is now. And of course, remember, in 2017, you know, the Daily Mail had I think the first 16 pages of the Daily Mail on the day of the 2017 general election was a hit job on Jeremy Corbyn. It didn't seem to have an impact. But I, th I think you have to accept Rupert Murdoch as a variable, right? You've got HarperCollins, mm. I think, as a publishing house. You've got Talk Radio. You've got The Sun. You've got The Times. You've got The Sunday Times. And he operates in, in fundamentally an alt-right media ecology in this country, which, by the way, is the mainstream media. It's, it's not people talk It's, you know, oh, what, what's our, you know, Fox News and uh, Breitbart? No. In this country, that is LBC and The Daily Mail and The Sun and The Express and The Telegraph. The, the alt-right is the mainstream media here. Uh, and I think, you know, his, his outlets are a big part of that. And sadly, because, you know, the BBC, because of cuts, but also I think because of politics, really does still take a lead in terms of its political agenda from the newspapers. And that alt-right, you know, tabloid sphere, which to a significant extent is, is, is influenced by Murdoch's papers. So, yes, he's not as, as influential as he once was, but I still think people like Murdoch the Barclay brothers, uh, Viscount Rothermere, none of who are, uh, none of who pay tax here as UK nationals, uh, and yet they think they should be allowed to shape the political debate in this country about the appropriate levels of tax and public spending and so on. Obviously, disgusting human beings. I think they really do still play a major role in in the politics of the country and, and the sense of broader political possibility. I think it's changing. So, for instance, LBC, I think, is a real new kid on the block. I think for me, LBC is actually the closest thing we've got to to Fox. People talk about, oh, we're going to have, you know, GB News. I think LBC's kind of already done it. You look at what Nick Ferrari says, the stuff they were doing with Corbyn, Farage on there. What do I mean by saying it's like Fox News? There'll be a completely deranged story in Guido Fawkes or whatever, and the, the mechanism by which that becomes a mainstream story, I get sent to the BBC or, or wherever, is generally LBC, more often than not. So, you know, yeah, we're seeing some changes, but... Uh, Murdoch and his, his outlets are still incredibly powerful. Not for people under 35, but you have to remember, of course, this is a country, its median age is 40, and the, the, the economic and, and, and political power, because of our electoral geography, 
uh, but also because of you know house values and so on, is overwhelmingly in the hands of older people, and they still take a lead, I think, from people like Rupert Murdoch, generally speaking. I think that's a very fair assessment. It might be worthless, but the guy's still got quite a lot of power. Our final story for the evening. While the England football team have taken a brave stance against racism by taking a knee at the start of matches, Britain's political leaders had remained fairly silent. On Monday, Boris Johnson's spokesperson refused to condemn fans that booed players as they protested against racism. And Keir Starmer has said, as usual, nothing. That has now all changed. So six days after the initial incident, the Prime Minister's spokesperson said that Boris Johnson wants fans to cheer England's players on, not boo them. So he's saying, no, do not boo them. There's finally, it's not quite a condemnation, but at least he's taking a position. He was not going to do that or he didn't do that earlier in the week. Now, a couple of hours after that story broke, The Guardian published an exclusive interview with Keir Starmer in which he accused the Prime Minister of failing to show leadership. Starmer told the paper, The idea you boo the team is completely wrong. This is a response to what is an important collective decision by the team about their expression of their opposition to discrimination and racism. That's a decision they've taken, and I think they're right. All of us should support them and all of us in a position to do so should show leadership as Gareth Southgate has done and have the courage to call it out and say it's the wrong thing to do. The Prime Minister was wrong when he refused to call it out. He didn't have the guts to call it out. He hedged his bets and in doing so he undermined the team on the verge of this competition. He didn't have the courage to side with the players. That is leadership. Compare and contrast him and Gareth Southgate on this. He didn't have the courage to stand by the England team on the verge of this competition and he's wrong about that and that's a failure of leadership. Now that's all very well. I agree with everything Keir Starmer has said there. The problem is it took him six days to say it. So if you're saying the Boris Johnson was didn't show a lack, didn't show leadership because he didn't condemn the people booing the England players, neither did Keir Starmer, right? Until six days later. Now, why did it take this long? It could have been that they were waiting for a focus group to deliver back their results, or it could have been that, like the rest of us, Keir Starmer's team were on Twitter on Thursday and saw that YouGov had actually done a poll on this and that their silence was very much out of step with the general public. So YouGov did a poll among fans across all of Europe, because obviously countries all across Europe who were entering Euro 2020, and they found overwhelming support for people taking the knee basically everywhere, um, most strongly in, in Portugal, which I found somewhat surprising, um, but also very strong in England. Um, so in England, 54% of people support players taking the knee. Only 39% of people oppose it. That rockets um, to 78% of people when only asking ethnic minority Britons. Only 12% of ethnic minority Britons oppose taking the knee. Aaron, Starmer has finally come to the right position, but he sure has taken his time. Does he demonstrate the failure of leadership that he accuses Boris Johnson of? 100%. I mean, what he's saying about Gareth Southgate is embodying a certain kind of leadership I, I entirely endorse. I think it's absolutely true. I think what Gareth Southgate's done is show real moral courage, which is incredibly, you know, you, you see it so rarely in British public life. That it's kind of like, oh, wow, he's doing something not to be popular. Because often people make these statements. So I stand with the LGBT community or, 
you know, Black Lives Matter, and then they become really unpopular. Uh, and then they go, oh, God, yeah, you're right. Or, you know, or uh, solidarity with the Palestinian people uh, under occupation. And they become unpopular. People criticize them. They might start losing jobs. They might start having, you know, have people who, who they respect say, that's wrong, actually. I don't agree with you on that. And they don't have moral courage. And so they say, oh, you know what? You're right. It's complicated. They might even take back what they initially said. Uh, and what Gareth Southgate said, actually double down, not a belligerent way. So, and he said, no, actually, I've thought about this. As a team, we've collectively decided this. This is what we're going to do. And that's leadership. And so Starmer's right to observe leadership and, and highlight the facts. But like you say, Michael, this is another classic example of, uh, of Keir Starmer ambulance chasing a, a political cause. You know, people call him Captain Hindsight, I think, for good reason. Um, and, and I think this is an example of that. And it has that double problem for him because, like you say, the leadership qualities, the moral courage, and I would not use those two words with Keir Starmer, by the way, moral courage, put them out of the window. They, they really highlight his own deficiencies because those are the exact things he doesn't embody. You know, you might not agree with Brexit, and I, I don't think Boris Johnson agreed with it at one point, but the whole point of that political project that took the Tories to a major majority a couple of years ago was there's this thing, we're going to do it, we think it's the right thing because that's what people voted for. You know, and, and, and that's a politics, again, that Labour and Keir Starmer put themselves in opposition to. Or any any number of causes over the, over the what, 18 months he's, since he's been the leader, more than a year, you would never associate him with moral courage. So, yeah, I think this is a uh, this is doubly bad for him. I think at this point, though, Michael, I mean, it's a bit of a tangent, but I think just Keir's kind of a bit of a joke, right? Um, I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I was watching like Arsenal fan TV on YouTube and they're like taking the piss out of Keir Starmer. Mm. You know, that's really cut through. The guy's a bit of a joke. So Jeremy Corbyn was a joke. He, he was... Jeremy Corbyn, for many people, was a joke because they found they found the sort of sort of political aura around him ridiculous because he was attached to all these stories. But what I think people what I think people dislike about Keir Starmer is actually strange enough what he was pitching. It, it's just that his pitch has really not gone down very well. You know, I don't mm. really believe in very much, and I'm going to be a technocrat and I'm going to be professional and wear a suit. And people go, "Oh wow, you're just a technocrat. You just wear a suit. You don't really believe in anything." And and, and it's kind of like for me, that's what's really interesting with Starmer is that people dislike him, not because they've not seen enough of him, not because they don't interpret him properly or because he's been misrepresented in the media. They identify precisely what he's trying to sell, and that's what they don't like. What really struck out this week was that YouGov have shown that Keir Starmer now has ratings which are you know, just as bad as Jeremy Corbyn was at this same stage in his in his leadership. And now you say, oh, why are you critiquing someone for being just as unpopular as the guy you supported? Mm -hmm. Well, Jeremy Corbyn was subject to a really big smear campaign. Keir Starmer hasn't been. You might say, oh, well, we're being biased because we're saying maybe he has been subject to a smear campaign and we're not recognising it. Even Keir Starmer's stands don't say the media have misrepresented him. You know, no one is out there claiming, oh, the reason people don't like Keir Starmer is because he's been misrepresented. He's clearly been correctly represented. The media have reported Keir Starmer mm. as he is. It's because they don't find him threatening. Why would they bother to smear him? But but they 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 have reported him as he is. Yeah. The public don't like him, and he's panicking now because it's, because what what can you do if they're seeing the real you and they don't like it? That's exactly it. I mean, it's unique, Mark. We're we're looking here at a story in British public life which the media are accurately re accurately representing. It doesn't <laughs> happen very often. It's happened with Keir Starmer. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll be honest, Michael, you know, and I think you and I were similar on this. We want, we were open-minded about Keir Starmer. And I think the pitch that he had when he became leader, I'll be 80% of Corbyn's policies, but I'll be wearing a suit and lead into my credentials as a former director of public prosecutions. 
actually, if you really mean that, I think that's a, that's a really great thing to aspire to as Labour leader. Obviously, he didn't. But I, I never thought he would be this, not even bad, I never thought the numbers would fall apart this quickly. Mm. You know, you look, for instance, amongst no, 18... I didn't. I definitely didn't. 18 to 24s, you've got, I think, Labour on 35. They're down on, like, 20-something. You've got, like, the Greens second on, like, 24. I mean, people get this on Twitter today. And the Tories on 21. And, and people say, well, 18 to 24-year-olds don't vote. I mean, this is your base. Minorities, renters, graduates, the young, public sector workers. We saw a poll recently, actually, you know, an astonishing number of nurses back... Uh, Boris Johnson, not particularly fond of Keir Starmer, you know, Labour are really looking at a real hiding at the next general election. Like, it's frightening. And I think we're going to get a glimpse of Batley and Spen. And what's different with Batley and Spen, and I will bring this back to the Southgate thing, what's different with Batley and Spen to say Hartlepool is, Hartlepool is super explicable in terms of long-term trends. Batley and Spen is really different. You know, yes, it was a marginal. Yes, it, you know, it has elements of people that want to leave the European Union and so on. It was a big far right there not long ago. I mean, obviously, the terrible events around Joe Cox um, demonstrate that. I think, I think the BNP or the National Front, you know, back in the day, big locally. But what they what they really show, I think, in Bally and Spen is the potential of Labour's vote. Uh, the potential of Labour's vote to balkanise, uh, and, and in Bally and Spen, you're you're seeing that with Labour and George Galloway, right? Potentially, so some Labour voters may be going over to the Tories. <laughs> Some may be going to other parties for whatever reason, and then you've got George Galloway. And that's going to happen, I think, in lots of places. You know, Labour's problem now is losing voters both to your left and to your right, uh, which is something that Jeremy Corbyn in 2017, almost miraculously, actually, over you know he overcame. So it was the exact same challenge that was confronting a Miliband in 2015. So going back to the Gareth Southgate thing, you know, it just reeks of desperation like so many of these things. Just don't say anything here. You, you, you weren't on the story. Look, we're content creators in Navarra Media, Michael. You know, you don't talk about a story from three weeks ago on Siski Sauer, do you? People aren't interested anymore. If you wanted to show political leadership, if you wanted to influence the debate, Keir, you should have done it when you should have done it, which wasn't, you know, on Friday. You know, it was on Monday or it was last week. Uh, and it was, a, it was a real open goal as well, by the way. You call you, well, if you want to call yourself an England football supporter, don't boo the team. Not hard. It's really not that hard. <laughs> That's very well put and a great note to end the show on. Aaron, it's been an absolute pleasure as always um, spending my Friday night talking to you about politics. My pleasure, Michael. Um, one day we'll be back in the studio at the same time. We'll be back on Monday, same time, same place. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.